Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscription button and follow us if you're not doing so already, and do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Tim Dixon, co-founder of More In Common. More In Common's mission is to understand the forces driving us apart, finding common ground, and bringing people together to tackle shared challenges. So we're going to be looking at the work they do. We're going to be looking at the research they're driving forward, the partnerships they're trying to create, the ecosystems they're trying to build, and how they're focusing on leaders in order to drive forward change. And without further ado, Tim, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you very much, Alberto. It's great to join you. It's great to see you again. Uh, good to speak with you. Welcome onto the show. And look, you're the co-founder of More In Common. Sounds like an interesting organization. What's More In Common all about? It's all about polarization. It's all about kind of understanding these dynamics of um, fracturing that are being experienced in societies from the rich world to the poor world. Um, you know, we. it's kind of obvious that when societies become more divided, that that's a threat in terms of when it gets very bad, it's a threat of violence, it can threaten your democracy, but also at a much more practical level for most countries, I think what's what we're realising is that the forces that, if, if you think of, um, you know, physicists will talk to you about the centripetal and centrifugal forces, the forces that spin us out away from the centre, the forces that spin us towards the centre. And I think, you know, a healthy society has those things in balance. There's outward and inward forces. If you're, if you have, you know, total control in your North Korea, all of the forces are kind of making you homogenous and the same. But if you sort of fracture, um, then they all spin you out and you're all in kind of contention and disagreement. And the forces are out of balance right now. And there's a whole lot of reasons why, but they're out of balance. And the consequence is that it's really hard for us to make progress on any number of issues just to like solve problems. And you can think of that in the more contentious culture wars issues and immigration refugees, but it's also true in just in poverty, in environmental climate change issues, in reforming our education system for the 21st century, in things like criminal justice, gender equality, mental health, all these issues that they're getting ground into the cycle of polarization, which is where it's one side versus another side, and it's all sort of conflict and no compromise. And so we started more in common because we saw that this was happening. I had a very personal experience that a very good friend of mine, member of parliament in Britain, was murdered on the streets of her constituency. And that was, I have a political background myself, you know, we were good friends. And, and that was certainly a personal spark to kind of dedicate this season of my career um, to this issue. But it is also because I do think it's the it's one of the big, you know, defining issues of our times. And it's happened, it's emerged very quickly, the scale of the divisions and polarization. It's changing the dynamics. It means that we need different types of leadership than what we've had, I think, in the past. And so that's that's kind of my motivation. It's to to try and make an impact. Um, on an issue that's um, complicated and uh, far-reaching, um, but also where I think there are, you know, there are ways in. And like, it's also, I think it's true that societies historically have also experienced times of fracture and that there are ways out. Yeah. And so it's difficult to read headlines that don't make you feel strongly one way or the other. Um, I guess maybe starting with 
these headlines themselves, how aligned with reality are they, right? And and by that, I mean, so a, a mutual acquaintance stroke friend of ours who runs the, the IRC, the International Rescue Committee here in the UK, Laura Kirk-Smith, she... Uh, and also Emma Cherniowski, who runs UNHCR in the UK. I remember both of them having conversations with them, and they're saying, well, yes, there's the headlines, but actually the British public really do feel for the refugees and so forth. So I guess, and I and I always hear, you know, editors need to sell newspapers, editors, need, you know, conflict is the thing that they need to push forward a lot of the times. Tell me a little bit about your understanding of those headlines versus the reality on the ground as a, as a context. Well, in terms of the positions that people take on these contentious issues, there's very small numbers of people get aligned with, you know, the, the pure version of pro or anti on you know, any number of issues. So to take immigration, about 10 to 12% of people in all countries think there should be no borders. The vast majority of people think there should be. On the other hand, it's precious few, it's a larger number, but maybe 20% who think there should be no immigration at all. Most people have some, uh, uh, they, they toggle, they're somewhere in the middle. And we tend, to, we tend to get sort of made to think that these debates are between you know, two, a pro and anti position. And in fact, much of the public on these issues kind of toggles between um, different priorities that aren't necessarily in conflict. So they, you take a very specific example. We just did some research in Germany, which hasn't been released publicly yet, but it shows this interesting thing where 87% of Germans say there should be more deportations of people who've got no right to stay here, no right of asylum. There's high numbers, it's almost 9 in 10. But also 82% of Germans say, oh, but if you're in a job uh, or if you're in like a training in school or in training, even if you don't actually have a legal right to remain, actually, if you're integrated into the community, you should be able to remain. You should have a place here. Now, if you're just a pure kind of immigration policy specialist, you kind of spin your brain. And in fact, I presented this um, in a, a conference in Geneva recently, and the, the German um, representative there was kind of very frustrated that it seemed that the German public was taking an irrational point, perspective. It wasn't kind of a clear policy position but that's actually the reality of most people on most issues and what we try to do with our work is to understand the underlying values and concerns and orientations that people have to generate to kind of bring in the nuance and to show that the there aren't the reality is these debates the sort of the headlines that present this binary story that's part of the problem and we're more in a world because of our sort of attention deficit disorder and the the nature of our media environment we're constantly being served up these silly binaries. They are false binaries. They do not describe either the way that policy ever works or the way that most people think, but they are what's optimised for social media. So I think that's, you know, being aware that this is often a false binary that we're given and that there are other ways. And by the way, we've always in democracies always made messy compromises uh, and, you know, not been able to, and, and almost never actually on policy issues either aligned on sort of one extreme or the other. But there's a distortion in our current debates that's leading us away from understanding just, you know, partly a more practical approach. And I think what's what I'm positive about 
because we do, you know, we we have conversations with thousands and thousands and thousands of people across um, the five countries where we're focused, which is US, UK, France, Germany, and now Poland. So big, the big Western democracies. Um, people are mostly less ideological or less political and mostly more practical um, in their approach, and which is like that German approach of saying, well, if you don't have a right to be here, you shouldn't stay. But then on the other hand, if actually you've settled in and you're contributing to society and working or training, then, you know, actually we we need younger workers. We need to um, deal with our imbalance in our <coughs> ageing population. So they're practical and quite welcoming, actually. Mm-hmm. Now, the name is More In Common. That's the name of your organisation. If I were adding a few words after that, would it be accurate perhaps to say more in common than we realize? In other words, you know, if I'm reading the headlines, perhaps I don't realize just how much common denominators we have with the the, the person next to me. Well, I mean, if you, if you go to the scientists of the Human Genome Project, they'll tell you that 99%, 99.7% of our DNA as humans is exactly the same, no matter what, how differently we look, where we come from, what our beliefs are. Yeah, we have far more in common than what divides us. We're in a world right now where we're focusing a lot of our attention, far too much, on differences. We're defining ourselves as well by our differences, and that's leading to a more fractured environment, And which is why, uh, uh, you know, mentioning the, the skill of leadership that's required, critical skill of leadership in whether it's in politics, in business, in philanthropy, in civil society, education, whatever, is the ability to help communities, small and large, navigate a world where you're given these pictures of fracture and division constantly, but they're they're a distorted mirror that's being held up to you. And being able to show that, in fact, it's not, you know, we're not divided 50-50 or whatever numbers on on so many issues. And yes, there's difference. But, you know, most people think that we have to compromise and you don't always have to win and defeat the other side. And we shouldn't be turning the, you know, the issues that we disagree on into some kind of match where one always has to win and the other has to lose. You alluded to some of the research, uh, for instance, the one in Germany where it hasn't been published just yet, uh, but it's great to know some of the insight. What's your um, what's your work like uh, in terms of, on the one hand, doing the the analysis, the understanding of of, of what uh, of behaviors and attitudes? What about the the continuation of that in terms of addressing some of those fractures, some of those very polarized headlines and and perhaps seeing how we can mitigate the risk that these headlines lead to unappealing um, outcomes. Yeah, well, and maybe I was thinking today about the best, what's the most useful way to talk about More in Common's work for your audience, because you have an audience of people with a real interest in how do you make change in the world and, you know, with different approaches and different backgrounds, but particularly with philanthropy and social enterprise and civil society efforts. So, I can kind of think about more in common and describe it in, in two different ways. One is around just as an organizational initiative and the kind of the thinking behind what we're doing. And another is the, the practicalities of the issues we work on, polarization, division. But let me go to the first to, to answer your question. What we asked ourselves when we started up, um, and it's sort of five years since we've had the, the, uh, our countries and the whole thing in motion. What we asked ourselves was, how do we make a difference? on what's driving division. 
And part of our answer was, because this is, you know, it is a difficult issue to work on in the sense that the drivers of polarization are complex, but the funding for this sort of stuff is, is often quite simple. The solutions are very intertwined, but philanthropy tends to be siloed. And, you know, the, the background to conflict is always long and, you know, long term, um, but it turns into a crisis in the very short term. So one thing we concluded was we need to be making the case for the kind of work that can be effective to change these dynamics of polarisation, to strengthen the social fabric, to, to strengthen cohesion. And that means being evidence-based. And that took us into really sort of looking at lots of different fields of knowledge. But and that we obviously talked to a lot of people in the conflict world, in the political science world, there's an economic dimension, there's technology and media and all of those things. But we really found that social psychology is especially helpful in opening up a better understanding of what's driving division. And so a big part of our work is to build an evidence base um, through social psychology. So we do a lot of public opinion research, but in lots of different ways, surveys, one-on-one -on -one interviews, focus groups, we have online panels, a variety of different uh, um, methodologies, really to get us a picture. And the, the most important part of this picture that emerges, and we've published major studies with very large population, research populations in each of the countries we worked in, um, the most important picture you get is that approximately one in three people uh, really feel dug in on their stance on kind of politics on the on the issues that divide us. Like politics is quite central to their identity. But for two-thirds of people, it's not. They'll have a position on issues, but in fact, they're they'll they'll go sort of between positions. They they will um think that compromise is more important than sort of standing up and fighting and, and winning. Some of them, and there's differences within those groups, within that kind of two-thirds of the population. One aspect is that there's a whole bunch of people who are quite disengaged. Some of them are quite alienated um, and feel loneliness, a lack of belonging. And they're often the ripe pickings for people who want to drive a, a narrative of, of division. But there's also people who are not political particularly, but more civic-minded, who, who love to just build at the local level and make a difference and, you know, actually really want to avoid conflict. There's other people who are just surviving, keeping their head above water um, financially and who feel very insecure. And there's other people who are who are very strong on feeling society needs a healthy society is a health, is a society that's very ordered and they worry a lot about crime and security and terrorism and those sorts of issues. Finally, there's people who are really group oriented. They're kind of like the people who, you know, big football fans, but they also they think in terms of groups and they think in terms of threats to groups. So they're very um persuaded, for example, if you if they don't feel that there's a defense of the traditional values of their culture they can feel very anxious about outsiders coming in who don't respect those rules. Now, that's, an, that's a large picture. It differs, of course, in each country. It's, there's a lot of nuance to it. But that picture of understanding where, where, what the starting point is or what's the kind of orientation that different people have to society and to issues, that's the evidence base that we start on. So when um, climate organisations, we work with several hundred climate organisations across our, our different countries, to help them get beyond just speaking to the choir and often actually unintentionally driving, like making cl climate issues into a cause of division, which it can be. If you're only ever talking to your own tribe, you can define issues in very uh, polarizing terms. 
And so one thing that we do is help them see, you know, the only way that we solve as as a species that we solve the the problem of um, global warming is that we have to find ways to connect to diff- the value systems and the the way that others see the world. And we do a lot of work on that. And we've really seen positive results from that. So that's sort of how we work. That's an example. We do work on lots of different issues, but it's always with this lens of how do we understand where the starting point for other people and that's where the having a, a kind of a, a mapping of the psychology of our populations um, that gives us a different angle and it's one that I, th- I think in practice with a lot of our work because we our model is basically partnering with other organizations reduce insights we partner with organizations like an IRC for example um, and then we we also try to help broaden the ecosystem of different actors who are trying to to work in a positive way towards uh, countering polarization and strengthening uh, cohesion. But what we're trying to do in all of that is to bring a specialised perspective to people who are often only thinking about their one issue, they're only thinking about education reform or they're only thinking about democracy or they're only thinking about the immigration um, issues. And so where our starting point is people, rather than issues and that often means that we can provide something that's really useful so it's interesting i mean when i look back on it now we started you know, five years ago with all of our teams we we give a lot of authority and um autonomy to our country directors and in, in each of our teams we've got about 50 staff now um, across our five countries um but there is a a common there are both common elements to what our country teams are doing and also distinctive elements that reflect where there's opportunities for impact you know in different in different countries um and so that's an exciting thing for me in how it's evolving is that we're not an, we're not like an international organization that has this template that says here's the solution to polarization because you know the solutions the drivers are really similar from one country to another solutions i think are more different from one place to another but i think what we're seeing is that there are you know many things which can make a difference not one silver bullet by any means but there are many things that can create a healthier democracy can strengthen trust in each other can get us out of this sort of intensifying like spiral of polarization yeah now I'm going to ask you a question, but before I do, just want to flag up your mission, and this your mission. It's, I think it's a it's a great mission. It says to understand the forces driving us apart, and find common ground and bring people together to tackle shared challenges. Which is whoever wrote it, right on the money. How do you do that? So you've given us the insight in terms of that research and how you do that. But even though there's not a single silver bullet, but how do you bring people together? How do you get them to appreciate that there are shared challenges? And how do you nudge them into figuring out what those solutions could be or, or might be? Well, I think a big part of the answer is is leaders. Um, and I think there's such an opportunity for leadership um, in this moment in, in many different walks of life. You might be a church pastor who's dealing with uh, division and polarization in your congregation. You might be leading a school. Um, you might be in the public health um, area, for example, where you know COVID to- showed us how suddenly issues, a, a sector that seems you know kind of quite independent and neutral, can suddenly be caught into culture wars. Um, you might be um, managing a whole lot of staff in a workplace, and a diversity issue comes up that becomes very polarizing. Many different contexts where people are encountering 
these complex dynamics of, you know, conflict erupting almost from nowhere. What we do is three things to help solve that. Firstly, it's the insights. So we do, we publish, we, you know, get commissioned to do projects. And so we typically work having done a large mapping of sort of the state of the country, state of the nation, um, that uh, particularly highlights the distinctive orientations that people have um, in their societies to um, to each other and to current issues of division. So it's called segmentation research, it's like market segmentation. It talks about distinctive groups and identities. That itself is very often a, a spark for real um, aha moments for people. So to give you one example, um, a little while ago, we did training for UNHCR, the UN um, Refugee Agencies staff all across Europe. And one aspect of what we did, because we had this research base, was we were showing how there's really typically about 20 to 25% of the population who have a kind of cosmopolitan outlook, more highly educated, typically in big cities, who have a very pro-immigration pro-refugees of attitude. Now, there's another 50% of the population that believes that refugees should be welcome in their societies, but they're much less, they have, there are other issues that they worry about as well. But when we show them this um, mapping, there's this aha moment of, wow, I'm realizing that the three quarters of the population that you've just shown in the four or five different typologies, that that's three quarters of the population I thought that that might be 20% of the population or 30%. And I'm realizing that almost everybody I know and hang out with socially and work with really represent only a quarter or 20% of the population. That's a big aha moment. And that unlocks, well, okay, maybe I don't know the world as, as well as I think. And remembering that part of the reason for all of that is we are much more siloed as people than we used to be in, in our digital environments, in the places where we live, in the jobs we do. We encounter less, much less difference, even though we live in these very diverse societies. And we sometimes think, well, I experience lots of diversity because I live in a big city with, um, uh, you know, uh, people from all kinds of backgrounds. But actually, you often find a lot of ideological similarity uh, and you get the Brexit moment, right? Or the, the Trump vote in 2016. So many Americans said to me who were Hillary voters said, I can't believe it. I, I didn't know anybody who voted for Donald Trump. I talked to Trump voters, they'd say, I can't believe this is, this is a fair result because, um, or that, you know, she got almost 50% because I don't know anybody who voted for her. Same with Brexit in the UK at the same time. You know, people didn't believe these numbers. And so that's, that's a really important part, a starting point of opening up curiosity to maybe I don't really understand everybody's starting point. And it's also really important then to, to address prejudice that we all have, that we think that people who don't share our way of seeing the world don't share it because, you know, they're not educated or informed enough or they're prejudiced. Or, whereas, in fact, you know, people have different starting points, different histories in their own experience, different orientations and the things that they prioritise. And I think having what we encourage with our work and the insights work is this curiosity to better understand. And then we bring that to an issue and then we, you know, try to unpack the issue. Second, then we, in, we work in partnerships where we're working typically with an organization, an institution that can, or a leader that can make a difference at scale. So we worked, for example, with the French 
Catholic Church with the Bishops' Conference and with the network of NGOs in France around the issue of migration. Uh, I mentioned UNHCR, we've worked with the US State Department recently on, uh, and the, the group of organisations working on refugee sponsorship, which is something we've really strongly got behind in several countries. So we work in partnership with organisations that are navigating polarisation, trying to make a difference. And the last is building an ecosystem. We really think we have to expand the number of actors in society, but not who are like social cohesion people, not who are uh, in the sometimes people now talk about the bridging sector because in the US especially there's hundreds of organizations working on these issues but the, you know it's also a big country right <laughs> the United States that you can you can get into this sector and think oh there's so many people doing so many things it's like no this is not really impacting that many people's lives at all because it's you know there's so many people in a big society what we really need to do is think systemically I mean how do we how do we plan our housing um, and our communities in ways that help us to connect with each other and give us more of a sense of belonging, because that's part of the solution. How do we um, structure education so that parents mix with each other um, as well as kids mix with each other when they're at school? So like, all, all of the things that just create a healthy dynamic of social interaction, but then at the media level, how do we communicate information, create media ecosystems that don't polarise and oversimplify um, but, you know, don't also overcomplicate, but just give people more reliable, accurate information that doesn't drive division. So that piece of the ecosystem is where we're thinking about how do you get a lot more people onto sort of team unity, in a sense, onto team cohesion. But while they're doing the things that they're doing, not by specialising in that, and that's where I think, you know, the hopeful message from a lot of our work is you can be an agent to disrupt polarization, to create a healthier dynamic among us um, in your society. It's just that those skills are not things that we've needed to think about, um, you know, until more recent years. Unless you talk to somebody who's worked in conflict zones, as of course, Alberta, you have done and had some really interesting conversations with people in that field. And I think, you know, that's a, a thing that we're now learning is to draw from some of the insights of people who've worked in that field and think about how they apply to, you know, established democracies who once we thought would have been impervious to these sorts of threats of division. Absolutely. And I was going to ask you on those insights and those lessons that you're drawing from all the research and all the partners and all the sort of systemic uh, um, building or systemic change that you want to drive forward. Those insights that you're gleaning from the work that you do, which must be invaluable, give us a little bit of a taste for those. What are some of those salient points that are coming to the fore? Well, let me give you one example of, because I think so often you, you assume that it's impossible to move someone from, um, you know, a, a dug-in perspective. Um, we, we've done a lot of work on, on the refugee issue and one of our partnerships um, uh, has been with Airbnb that's done some fantastic work around the, the um, Airbnb.org, which uh, has is helping to provide quick accommodation refugee crises. But it's around this, um, uh, uh, that project in the United States where Thanksgiving came along and there was one guy who had been involved with a, um, helping um, and hosting a refugee um, staying in his home who had uh, come from Afghanistan and his father-in-law, who's a strong Trump supporter, um, retired guy living in a retirement community in Florida, and 
who's coming up the Midwest to stay with his um, uh, son-in-law and his daughter for Thanksgiving, and he finds out that there's going to be this Afghan refugee for Thanksgiving, and he gets really annoyed. He says, you've got no right to invite an outsider. This is a family event. And, you know, by the way, I'm really against us having refugees. It's not necessary. It's unsafe to have these people. They could be terrorists. How do we know? It's not, I don't know why you even, you know, would have him in your home and so, so on. And you might think, okay, you know, here's an impossible situation. I mean, more and more American families are discovering this, navigating it at Thanksgiving every year because of the, the way polarization is affecting even family life now. But what happened on the night, he finally kind of, surrendered and said, all right, you know, this person, can he can be at the dinner table, whatever. But the Afghan refugee was um, who'd now settled in America was, was next to him, and they get talking, and he finds out about his background. Now, the fundamental values of this old guy from Florida are he's a very patriotic American, and he worries that American, that respect for American values and America, America's achievements is being undermined by all these outsiders coming in. But he finds out that the refugee from um, Afghanistan, in fact, his parent, he was a translator for the US Army. His parents were killed because of that. He got asylum to the United States, was very proud of, of uh, having come to the US and was hugely appreciative for um, having the experience of freedom as the, you know, with everything's going on in his home country. And a few days later, this guy goes back to his retirement community. He happens to write the weekly newsletter in the retirement community. And he started with this whole tirade against the prejudice of Americans against refugees, because refugees are, in fact, some of the proudest Americans. And then recounts the story of how he met this guy who was who knew the Constitution, who valued freedom far more than most Americans. Have. He'd literally done a 180, but actually he hadn't, because... The, the the thing to understand about his starting point, it never changed. It's about pride. It's about believing in the American vision, believing in the Constitution, believing in freedom and so, so forth. He had thought that this somebody coming in from outside was against those, but actually realised, no, this person is actually a better embodiment of these values that I have. A lot of our work is like that. It's understanding what people's real values and starting point most people are not the expression of an opinion about an issue. And the more that we shout at each other, the more that we force people back into a corner where they'll become defensive. You can never persuade anybody by starting by shouting at them. But if you ask questions and learn more about their starting point, learn why they might be concerned about a particular issue and give them some confirmation of, like, I'm hearing you, and this is not just at an individual level, because I think we need to be doing this in the way that we have a public debate about issues. Don't immediately polarise an issue, but talk about how we're navigating different priorities and different things that people in our community care about. You can find your way forward, and I think that's the leadership skill that is needed. And there are there is a sort of a, a set of attributes or uh, you know ways of finding common ground of demonstrating that the, the the binary story is just not a true story. Um, and some of that's research and some of it's how you talk to people. But that's the key thing that we're trying to help in a lot of different areas uh, of leadership and institutions to show that there is a way forward and then, and you know, do that in a very evidence-based way. 
I absolutely love it. And I love the example. And yes, that misunderstanding. And also perhaps that opportunity for those two folks to sit next to each other. Because I guess we don't always have that privilege, right? Of, of sitting next to somebody who might have a at least ostensibly a diametrically opposed view. And then you sit down and perhaps it's not so diametrically opposed after all. That's the magic. And that's why one of the things that we have to do in the way that we you know, structure and shape our society is we have to facilitate connection between humans. And we've got less of it. You know, there's, of course, there's enormous advantages with the digitization of everything. But there is a problem when we remove human mediation, human contact at you know, all these different levels of, of um, how we interact in society. Because the fundamental thing that we all need is connection, a sense of respect, a sense of being valued, belonging. Um, and so it's, and it doesn't mean that every, every interaction is a positive one um, either. I mean, the, the, you've got to think about how you create positive interaction, but that's an area, it's an interesting area of, of our, our work, but there's many better experts who work on this around social connection uh, even for us, you know, we're finding out, we've just done a project recently in Germany of like, where do people meet strangers? Where do they meet people who are different from them? And finding out that food courts and shopping malls, shopping centres um, are a really important place where people can connect in a way that they kind of feel safe. It feels like neutral ground. Libraries, interestingly, spaces like that. Um, you know, community facilities are important. Um, you know, schools are really important in when people interact with their health services. Like there are, there are, and the workplace is, is one of the most um, important, which is creates a great opportunity for, for business. But finding, looking at the at connection and interaction with people different from us as an opportunity to create the glue in society so that we, you know, and the, the, the glue is sort of wearing thin in many ways. That's a really important part of, um, of, of working towards solutions. Maybe we need to, uh, to trigger somehow a little bit more of a curiosity or appetite for finding out about those who aren't exactly like us, right? Because sometimes maybe if you can nudge folks to just be a little bit more curious, that, that, that should pay dividends. Exactly. Curiosity is, uh, you know, when we hire staff, we put curiosity as one of the top values we always look to because it's so... It's such a wonderful way to approach the world, to not assume that you've got it all worked out at the, or that you know, you understand, you know, someone when you meet them and you make all sorts of assumptions um, about them when you, when you, like asking questions and listening um, can make uh, such a difference. And that's like, that is a leadership skill that's, um, that's often, um, you know, glossed over when we think of leading in ways that are is kind of more one way like it's what we communicate it's what we tell other people to do but listening hearing and having that curiosity is so important because that that's how you work out um how to navigate through these very polarized times absolutely you know i've been proven wrong a million times i mean i can't tell you how many times and i always have an issue with folks who are very assertive like you know they write something and it's like this is the way it is and you see it on and the broadsheets as well the newspapers you know very high conviction i get it but you know have a little bit of tolerance perhaps that maybe you don't have it all covered and not every angle at least or maybe there's a blind spot here or there um how did you get into all of this i know you have a great background give us a little bit of an insight into that well I had the very the the specific kind of spark moment of um, the tragedy of of uh, Joe Cox's death, as I as I mentioned, 
But more broadly, I I have this kind of this mixed background where I've always had, I personally have been driven by a strong sense of curiosity um, in 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 a career sense. So I, you know, my twenties, I had a business, an education business, um, and I, I particularly work with high school students, wrote economics textbooks um, as my kind of starting point. I trained as a lawyer, worked in the technology sector for a while. So I had the kind of law toolkit, I had the economics toolkit. I had then I had the political toolkit, worked for a couple of two Australian prime ministers, uh, first as economic advisor, then as a speechwriter. So the kind of communications toolkit. Um, and I went from there when I finished up in politics, uh, I went to New York and for several years I was working in an agency there, principally working on campaigning. Uh, sort of using digital technology to mobilize millions of people around different issues, but also to kind of build new philanthropically driven initiatives to solve problems. So I did a lot of work on human trafficking, uh, helped start uh, seven different organizations over the the, the 10 years um, from there. Uh, and that meant that I've always been quite agnostic about what tool to use to solve a problem. I, and I, I think I enjoy the kind of the multi-dimensional nature of the work that we do. It is between, you know, jumping between countries. But it's also, it's always struck me that if you only ever trained as a lawyer, then you can be convinced that the solution to everything is litigation or, you know, a new statute or something. If you're an economist, you know, you think that everything's about material um, uh, realities and and economic change and and so on. You know, you, you can come from whatever silo. Uh, what I realized when I started working on this issue was that I was very fortunate to have the background I did of, you know, partly it's kind of driven by, I guess, a professional restlessness on my part of really wanting new challenges and loving the entrepreneurial side of building new organizations and new initiatives. But I did feel like, uh, actually, this is it's very helpful on polarization. As I talked to lots of people about what, what they felt was driving it, I realized that so often people defined a problem just through their own experience, whatever skill base they, you know, professional background they had or organizational perspective they had. And I thought it was really important to start something that didn't belong to any one perspective, um, that was trying to be, you know, as evidence-based as possible about where, where are the solutions. So that's the kind of the organizational lens on what, how more in common, um, came about. Um, and I, I think that I, I also um, I wanted to to tackle this because you know, there's a little bit of a sense for me. It's partly I mean I'm a person of faith and that faith has influenced me a lot in my kind of orientation and even how I go about thinking about how to solve problems. I really felt like this is the problem for me to work on now as well, and that there are limitations in the ways in which we're currently going about thinking of these problems. So a lot of the effort in the US especially around polarization is very individualized as if we can solve this problem you know one person by person i think all of those efforts are incredibly important and we do them you know we support them we partner with different organizations but i also think you need to work at the system level and with my background and my colleagues background starting more in common you know we saw that like at the political level there's very few people who are in a politician's office making the case for the health of society. I mean, I found this when I worked for prime minister. Day after day, everybody just wants more from you, from a government. Everybody is kind of, you know, just interested in their constituency, just interested in their business, whatever. 
And so we've tried to build an organization that talks to prime ministers and presidents and chancellors and, and ministers and so forth. And we get a lot of access actually because we're respected as not pushing the barrow of a particular issue, but actually saying more, this is how we think you can navigate this issue and land in a different place to what you might otherwise. And, you know, that's hard. Like if you think of transgender issues, very contentious. It's an area where we've done quite a lot of work in the UK, and I think quite productively, to the point where we've had really positive engagement and appreciation from both sides of politics around the input that we've provided, we published a report and so on. So that's where I think, you know, it's a sweet spot in your professional life where you can feel like you're doing new things. It's you know entrepreneurial, it's kind of fresh. It's not all predetermined path, at least for me, that's kind of my makeup. But you're also like you're doing something on an issue that really matters um, and that feels congruent with your own background. And, and, and the lovely thing about it that I thought less about when I started it, I mean, we've got 50 colleagues now, is just the wonderful people you work with. And we've got a really smart group of people. And that makes even then when, you know, we work on wicked problems and really difficult challenges, especially in the more polarised countries, but you can still see a way through. And the challenge, the, there's a, there is a joy as well in working out what is the breakthrough, what's limiting the two sides or the people who are trying to mediate the two sides, what's limiting us from getting this beyond this kind of um, uh, conflict between uh, two sides? How do we change some of those dynamics? And when you find those, you know, things that can unlock progress. It is very exciting. I like it how you came into this from a sort of interdisciplinary uh, vantage point, having had a legal background, have, having had a background in economics. And in some ways, that's what you're trying to drive forward is getting different folks to sort of interact with each other who may have completely different uh, contexts uh, behind them. Before you run off, what's that key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Yeah, I, I, so I, I have thought about this question because I know that you ask it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, so I, I want to give you three quick ones. The first is like, these are like three, my three biggest tips on how do you, how do you lead a group or an organization beyond polarization to navigate polarization? The first is work out where there's a false story of two sides that you need to break down. The second is, be aware of something that we call perception gaps. We've published reports on this. But how when you have things made into two sides, it's very, it's almost certain that on each side, they will have a very exaggerated view of the extremes of the other. In reality, even people who have a perspective this way or that way on, on any number of different issues, are much more moderate than you think. And, you know, we have a lot of science behind this, but like typically you think they're three times as extreme as they really are. So be aware that there are gaps in perception that you will have as well as the other side if you're a protagonist in a, in a conflict. And then the third is, uh, from a perspective of leadership, do not underestimate how much people are despairing and discouraged by the level of division and fracture and offering people hope and a way forward and a way out is really important right now. Uh, we've recently been partnering with a fantastic organization in the United 
States, uh, StoryCorps, that has is matching strangers together, people who are from opposite divide, sides of different divides, and they have a conversation for 50 minutes together. And what we're doing, helping them, they've done, 5,000 people have done this so far, and it's going really, really well. And the surprising thing is, Americans, even with strong opinions, when they sit down together, even when they're strangers, if they sit down with a determination to actually listen a little bit to the other side, they can find connection. But what we're doing with the, to help with this is taking the kind of media content, the snippet of this conversation, two minutes, three minutes, sort of optimized for social media. And we're testing how that goes down and what resonates with an ordinary American who's not going to have one of these conversations necessarily. And it's so amazing to hear the hope that people get just by listening to a couple of minutes of a conversation. People say, I didn't realize that it's possible to be friends with someone who sees things differently from you. Now I scratch my head and I think, how do you not realize that <laughs> there are more ways of being friends than be com being completely like-minded on politics or whatever? But that's a reflection that everything people are being fed in the American media is just driving this polarization. So. The hope here, it's not only that people listen to it and say, oh, I feel better about America, but we've measured an increase of 50% in the number of Americans willing to take part in a similar conversation just after hearing a few snippets like that. In other words, there are some big shifts that you can get when you see hope. And I think one of the pieces that's really missing right now is this sense of, um, dread about what's around the corner because we're, you know, we're hearing so much negativity. So getting beyond the binaries, being aware that we can distort the world through uh, perception gaps and understanding that hope is incredibly powerful and ev evidence-based hope as well, I would say, not just the feel-good stuff because uh, people don't believe that, you know, people are pretty disillusioned. But when you can give them examples and show there really is a way through, then you really can see something different. And that is why, you know, I get up every morning, you know, just feeling so privileged to be able to do the work that More in Common does. How wonderful. How wonderful. Thanks for sharing those last three tips. Very useful. And here's to your continued success in getting people together and letting them appreciate that they probably have more in common than they realize. So thanks so much, Tim, for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. A great privilege to join you, Alberto. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Tim Dixon, co-founder of More In Common. For information about this conversation and more than 250 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoy producing today's conversation for you, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.